This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone, I'm C.P. Leslie, taking a break from my normal focus on historical fiction to host this episode of New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Russell E. Martin about his latest book, The Tsar's Happy Occasion, Ritual and Dynasty in the Weddings of Russia's Rulers, 1495 to 1745. Russell Martin is a professor at Westminster College in Pennsylvania. He has written, edited, or translated 10 books, including two on Muscovite and Imperial Russian weddings and the bride shows leading up to them, and one on the art of Konstantin Makovsky, a painter known for his depictions of 16th and 17th century nobility. In addition, he has authored many articles on those and other life stage rituals in Muscovite life. For more than 20 years, he has advised the Russian Imperial House, the Romanov dynasty, on various legal and historical issues, and he is the lead translator for the dynasty's official webpage. As a fellow specialist in Muscovite history, I am delighted to have read first his A Bride for the Tsar, then this new book, and I look forward to sharing it with you. So without more ado, please join me in welcoming Russell E. Martin. Hi, Russ. Thank you for agreeing to talk with me today. Thank you for having me. Before we get into the Tsar's happy occasion, please give us a short summary of A Bride for the Tsar, Bride Shows and Marriage in Early Modern Russia. Let me know if anyone who wants to learn more about that book can do so by searching for your name on the newbooksnetwork.com site. And that's one word, New Books Network. Yeah, <clears throat> thank you for that uh, uh, plug of the, uh, of the other book. Um, it's, um, it might be thought by some people to be kind of a prequel to this book, but uh, it really isn't. Well, well, the present book is, uh, The Tsar's Happy Occasion, is really uh, a, a book about ritual and um, kind of an anthropology of power. Um, the earlier book, Bride for the Tsar, really is about power and uh, uh, has a completely different focus, not just in terms of what the topic of the book is, which is the politics of picking a bride for the Tsar in the early modern period, but also sort of the tool set that I used, uh, which is completely different from from what I did with Tsar's Happy Occasion. Um, Bride for the Tsar really comes out of, uh, uh, you know, asking the question uh, that has been asked, actually, but never really sort of answered by by my colleagues and predecessors in the field. Uh, why uh, why did the Russian Tsars pick and, and Grand Princes pick th- their brides? And, and uh, why is there this repeating reference in the sources to this fascinating thing called uh, bride shows? Uh, where a number of eligible young women were presented to the Tsar, and he sort of picked who he wanted to marry as if it were 
a, a genuine love uh, contest or a beauty contest um, and completely open and free of any po- uh, politicking. And in fact, what the book goes about to show is that in fact, um, it wasn't an open contest. It was quite political in its in its um, in its processes and in its goals. And it more than that, it really uh, was a gateway to understanding the nature of the political system in, in Muscovy, uh, early modern Russia, in that it kind of both at the same time facilitated and concealed dimensions of the monarch's power. Uh, I certainly am in the group of uh, the school of thought, if you like, that that argues that uh, this traditional view of monarchical power in Russia was uh, autocratic, top-down, the czar owned the people in the land, could do anything he wanted. And uh, counter to that, I, I'm among those who say that's probably just not true. It never was true, certainly in the early modern period. Um, and uh, that uh, power was more collaborative, limited, con- uh, built on consensus politics, and all facilitated by marriage. Now, there have been, there have been uh, scholars who had come before me, Nancy Shul Coleman comes to mind, but also Ned Keenan, who had, uh, who had put the focus on the, the marriages of the boyars, all the great nobles around the czar, and showed, I think established, that in fact, marriage was what this political system was all about. It facilitated uh, position and place and honor uh, at court. Um, but it, no one had ever asked the question, well, what about the Tsar's marriage, which is clearly the linchpin of it all. So this book really was about trying to investigate um, how the Tsars uh, picked their brides and how they concealed that process, how they concealed in the sense um, that collaborative, limited nature of monarchy in order to project a very different image of, of the autocracy. And unfortunately, you know, it seems to me that generations of historians have sort of bought the story um, and not looked a little closer at the nature of power, uh, which, you know, in the early modern period, not just in Russia, but everywhere is, is you know, is facilitated by court rituals. Court rituals was the language. It was the sort of internet. It was... It was the PR firm for um, for everything that monarchies and not just monarchies, uh, the church played obviously a key role too, in in developing rituals. It was about rituals, um, so so the book really was was sort of teasing that out and uh, really looking at these uh, beauty contests as in as highly choreographed moments um, that uh, were serious, taken very serious. They weren't just facades even if the message was insincere, um, the, the, the politics behind them was really quite deadly serious. Um, now, in this new book on uh, It's Our Happy Occasion, it takes it to the next step. It, it really um, ex- explores well, what happens once the bride has been picked. How does ritual and power and women, uh, royal women and... Uh, uh, sort of the court, uh, the nature of of the of the court, the relationship between czars and their, their and their nobles, play out in the symbolism and meanings uh, of the of the uh, of the rituals themselves, and so that required really kind of looking at it from a very very different uh, perspective, from a sort of a methodological perspective. I uh, I had to really 
uh, school up on uh, the anthropology of gift giving, for example. I had to school up on um, the anthropology of rites of passage, of which is an enormous literature. Um, not on the, uh, much of it not on Russia, but uh, just the, the theoretical material out there is enormous. So it's not really, in a way, uh, you know, a sequel to The Bride for the Czar, the first book, uh, because it really is, although it is, in a sense, the next thing that happens, it's it's really a very, very different book uh, in terms of what's going on behind the scene. And so uh, politics is there. There's no doubt that the, the, a theme that runs through the book is is power. It's one of the major themes of the book. But uh, it isn't the principal uh, uh sort of target that I'm, that I'm after. I'm really trying to say uh, more things and, and, and actually to sort of fill in some blanks too from the previous book, uh, which, you know, include uh, the role of royal women in, uh, um, you know, the Muscovite political system. Uh, ironically enough, the book on bride shows doesn't really deal with women very much, even though they're at the center of the, uh, of the title of the book and of, of the purpose, uh, you know, of the rituals. Uh, this book here, though, uh, really does bring women into the center. Women, women are in every chapter of the book, and then and one book on gift, gift giving is really focused almost entirely on women. So, so they're 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 complementary books in a way. Um, they could be read together, probably should be, um, but that's probably hoping for too much. I think that's a good way of summarizing it. I mean, there is a real uh, distinction between them, and I saw that. Um, you do begin your introduction with the wedding of the future emperor and empress Peter III and Catherine the Great in 1745. The future Catherine the Great, of course. Um, but this is the, the last wedding in the book that is typical of, of the points that you're making. So what makes this occasion emblematic of Muscovite and early 18th century weddings? Or is the point really, that this is a new departure. Yeah. Uh, you know, when I was a graduate student, I took a class from uh, John Clive, who uh, was a wonderful, wonderful professor at Harvard at, and taught a course called Classics of Historiography. And I remember very vividly, I, in fact, I wrote it down that, uh, you know, he said, you always look at the first and last lines of of anything that's that you're reading, that a good writer will will dovetail those things. Um, so I tried to do that as much as I can as a kind of silent tribute to the, to the man. And uh, he died just a, a year after I took his class it was really far too soon for, for the man. Um, and I, you know, I venerate his memory and I, I learned a lot from him about writing by reading the books that he assigned to us. And so, you know, when I was looking at this, uh, how to write this introduction, I knew I wanted to use this Lomonosov Ode, um, which was written uh, for the wedding of the future Peter III and Catherine II, uh, because it, it really just so nicely uh, illustrated all the themes or almost all the themes that I wanted to discuss in the book. So that's how I wanted to start the book. And then it, of course, meant that I needed to talk about that wedding in 1745, which was perfect because that was the, where I was going to end. You know, I have to say where that was where I was going to end, I think. When I was first beginning the book, I really didn't know where I wanted this book to stop. One impulse was to take it all the way to 1801 or 1797 when the law of succession, uh, the new law of succession by Paul I was uh, was promulgated. 
Uh, and I thought that would be a good place to, to do it. But uh, this book tracks two themes. It, it, it really does, you know, it's sort of like a double helix. It really is about weddings and, which is to say ritual, and it's about dynasty. Those two themes are really what, what, what are the core. And everything else is linked to it. So gifts, brides, power, uh, sacrality of monarchy, uh, orthodoxy, heterodoxy. All of the other themes sort of hinge on weddings and, and, and rituals. So um, what I found was that in 1745, uh, I get the, the wedding that sort of uh, – for which I have the best – uh, documentation in the 18th century, the later weddings in the 18th century, ironically enough, less well-documented. Um, also 1745, this Catherine the Great's wedding uh, is understudied. So it was a good thing to not go any further than that in order to put some emphasis on that, on what I was doing with it. But also the the uh, wedding themes sort of drop off at that point. The dynasty theme does go on. And I say a few words about that in, in, the, in the conclusion. Uh, all, all the way to 1797 and a little bit further even. But the two as a set uh, sort of uh, part ways in 1745. So that's that's the reason why I thought that was a good way to stop. And I'll also tell you this, um, you know, it was a tactical decision. I want people to read my book who are not uh, <laughs> early modernists. I want the modernists to read this book. Uh, and uh, starting with... Uh, you know, with Peter and, and Catherine is, is a way to draw them in. Um, everybody wants to, to, to read about, uh, about Catherine, of course, she's such a pivotal, fundamentally important figure in Russian history. And so um, it was a way of, it was a you know, sort of writing decision, thinking back of Clive on John Clive again, of how to draw the reader in and to dovetail the book into a kind of coherent, um, uh, you know, coherent and uh, beginning and end, naturally beginning and ending kind of uh, story uh, that had a, a natural denouement at the end. So that's what I was thinking. Let's leap back now uh, two centuries and a bit uh, to the first marriage that you cover in depth, uh, which is that of Vasily III of Moscow, who is not yet a czar, but grand prince. Uh, the father of the future Ivan the Terrible, and uh, he married Princess Elena Glinskaya in 1526. So just for starters, the wedding is, itself is a slightly scandalous event. So who are the protagonists and why is it controversial? Yeah, it's it's a really uh, fascinating moment because uh, this wedding is not only the very first wedding that gives us a new template of, of a, a new document in the uh, new documentary genre, let me say, uh, but but also is the end, or maybe the midpoint, really, of a of an enormously significant um, scandal in the court. And the scandal is is that uh, the Grand Prince Vasily the um, Third married in 1505. And by the way, his first marriage is was the first bride show as well. And 1505, uh, just before his father Ivan the Third dies. And uh, that marriage with uh, Solomonida uh, uh, Saborova lasts for 20 years, but it produces no children. As far as we know, not even uh, any stillbirths, uh, just um, no activity at all. Um, and uh, at a certain point, the grand prince is prevailed upon 
uh, and probably knows it himself, that he has to move on. He has to remarry in order to have another chance at um, producing the next generation. And, you know, as Ned Keenan once put it in one of his articles, there's simply no other duty of a monarch that is more important than producing the next generation uh, of viable males who can succeed to the throne. Policies aside, personalities aside, wars and diplomacy aside, the most fundamental uh, requirement is to produce the next generation of, of rulers. And he wasn't. Vasily III wasn't. And so he needed to send his wife, uh, <laughs> kicking and screaming, off to a convent, which she she uh, she is. Her becoming a nun essentially ends not essentially, but actually ends the marriage. It's not really a divorce. It's uh, the, the Orthodox Church provides for uh, spouses to, um, to to enter monasteries uh, and to become nuns or monks. Typically, that's done when both do it. In this case, only the, the wife was doing it. And so um, there was another bride show uh, quickly after that, and uh, Yelena Glinskaya was picked. And he marries her in 1526. This produced, however, an enormous backlash uh, of um, high-ranking boyars and even members of the church who believed that this um, uh, ending of the of the marriage between Basili III and uh, Salamidita was was illegitimate. And uh, a lot of texts written later, actually, in the seven, in the 16th century. Um, not from that time, but reflecting pretty well some of the attitudes of the time, you know, uh, uh, predicted bad things uh, would result from this marriage. And then, of course, you know, we get Ivan the Terrible, the, uh, the elder of the two sons of this marriage, um, doing all the, the nasty things he does. So uh, the wedding itself is interesting. Inter- but the important thing about that and the interesting thing about that is that that scandal finds no real reflection in the ritual in 1626. So the wedding goes off uh, well enough. There are people you would have expected to be at the wedding in prominent positions of uh, honorary positions of service uh, who are not. And the reason why they're not is, um, is because they've opposed the grand prince and some of them have been uh, sent away in disgrace. A couple of them um, um, uh, treated very, very, uh, uh, forcefully, harshly. Um, and so they're not there. And that's the sort of curious thing. But the the wedding itself goes off in terms of the collection of rituals themselves without a hitch. It's a, it, In every way, it's, it, it is a, a, a traditional wedding um, as best as we can construct weddings before that. And we can only see weddings before that in bits and pieces because, as you said, 1526 is the first time we actually get this creation of a new document, uh, a chin, a svadibni chin, uh, or uh, ceremonial, wedding ceremonial, which is a document that very, um, in, in increasing detail over the century, describes the series of events, the speeches, the people who are who are involved, and uh, that document written in 1526. Uh, becomes the model for weddings throughout the, the, the 16th century. It's interesting because, you know, the 16th century is packed with a lot of wedding controversy. Uh, not just Vasily III's second wedding, which was bad enough, but then um, Ivan the Terrible comes along and he marries seven times. 
And the sixth time he marries someone who had been previously married. And so the whole ritual, we don't have a document for that, but we just, we have a few passing uh, comments about that sixth wedding. But other than that one, uh, we do have wedding descriptions for the seventh, uh, for the third, and for the first, and for the, uh, and for the fifth. So we can actually compare across Ivan's uh, life and multiple marriages how these um, how these rituals were performed. And the striking thing about that, and I, I talk about this in the book at some length, is that the rituals themselves do not change. What changes is uh, that in the later reign of Ivan the Terrible, you get uh, many more in-laws and in-laws of in-laws packing the positions, the honorific positions uh, in the in the wedding itself, positions that would have normally been smeared out among all the members of the of the uh, of, of the court, were uh, sort of bundled together and handed off to the in laws to the, to the new in laws, which is to say the bride's uncles and brothers and cousins, <clears throat> and uh, that is a departure. Uh, and of course, these are the years, the later years uh, of Ivan's reign, or really the years of the Aprishtina, which uh, you know, is this uh, unique and still poorly understood uh, period of a few years, uh, seven, eight years in Ivan's reign that uh, uh, that turned everything upside down. We still, it's, I'm actually hesitant to actually say what the Aprishtina is. What I can say is that there are very clear ritual uh, reverberations that something odd has happened in the court. Uh, so <clears throat> this is in the study of the Aparishna, or even its chapter is in the study of the Aparishna, but it does throw light on the Aparishna in the sense that we can sort of see the, the the ritual effects of it playing out in Ivan's reign. But the point, the point though, that's really uh, even more important than that, I think, is that despite all the uh, multiple marriages of Ivan, and let's remember too that his son, Tsarevich uh, Ivan Ivanovich, marries three times too. And we actually have one of the descriptions of, uh, of his marriages is first, uh, which is patterned almost verbatim on the 1526 wedding of Vasily III. So really what that means is that we have a really stable template, despite this amazing controversy going on in the 16th century, we really have a stable uh, template for how a czar is supposed to marry all the way up into really the turn of the 17th century when uh, the first false, false Dimitri marries and he begins uh, significant revisions. And then we get the Romanovs who do even a lot more than that. So the, the interesting thing is, is, you know, is that stability and why it remains stable? Why doesn't Ivan tinker with it? <clears throat> and my speculation on that is, um, and it can only really be that, is that, you know, Ivan knew that he was uh, playing with fire by marrying so many times. Uh, the canons of the church require or allow only three uh, marriages, and even then with penance for numbers two and three, uh, no question about four, five, and six. And in fact, they're, they're Byzantine and 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 even Russian um, prohibitions and, uh, you know, just explorations, canonical explorations of why you can't have a fourth marriage, let alone five, six, and seven. Um, so I, I haven't really needed these five, six, and seven, four, five, six, and seven to be 
very, very traditional weddings so in, in order to sort of put a stamp of legitimacy on them so that, that if any children would be born of them, there would be no question of their legitimate status. So uh, there's a there's a use here of ritual by approaching the problem of the Apatitian and Ivan's reign through the prism of ritual. We can actually throw some light on some more general questions, I think. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. That's a really interesting point. Uh, I would, we're, we're going to move on to the 17th century in just a minute, but for the sake of people who, unlike me, have not been buried in these sources, or, <laughs> and you <laughs> even more, um, can you tell us just a little bit about what the stages of the ritual itself were? Because it's it's a bit more than a trip down to the local registrar's office and the, <laughs> and the big party afterwards in the Soviet-style version. Yes, it is. Uh, it, it's actually, a, in the 16th century, it's a three-day affair. And in the uh, 17th century, it quickly becomes a fourth, uh, four, four day affair and, and even in, uh, a five day affair when it comes to, uh, to Alexei Bikhalich's second wedding in, in 1671. So three days. Uh, and that's just the wedding. That's not throwing in also the bride show, which could happen a week to you know, uh, six weeks in front of the wedding. So the wedding itself, uh, three days, uh, and then the first day is really the most crucial in the sense that it's when the wedding happens. It's when the uh, the bride and the groom become husband and wife. And on that first day, uh, you get uh, a banquet, uh, you get the church wedding, you get the key speeches, you get um, gift exchanges all in the hands of the bride, or mostly in that first day entirely, uh, gift exchanges happen um from other people on days two and three, but the first day it's really the bride's day. So what happens is the the the, um, the, the, the bride and groom are separate um, uh, in the Kremlin. The bride had been introduced into the Kremlin in, in a ceremony that I like to call the entry into the Kremlin or entry into the Terem. We don't have any descriptions of it. It was very clearly a um, ritualized event where she's installed, usually with some of her female kin uh, in the Tarim, the Tarim being the, uh, the the apartments inside the Kremlin complex, palace complex, specifically designed for women. And it still exists today. It's actually a remarkable thing to go and, to go and see. It's really well preserved. Um, she would be in the Tarim. The, the, the groom would be in, the, uh, in his palace, his residential palace. And then uh, the groom would send to the bride a message, please go to the banquet hall. And she would, and uh, she would process process there with uh, w- with the women folk led by uh, a high ranking boyar, and she would take her seat at a banquet table. At that point, uh, someone would go from the 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 banquet hall to the to the tsar and say that it's time to you know, it's time to attend to the wedding. It's time to come, and he does. He comes and he enters the room. He gets a blessing from the priest. Um, he greets people. He sits down next to the bride. And it, after a very short time there, uh, they then process to the 
to the wedding. Um, also right next door in one of the cathedrals inside uh, the Kremlin. And then they are, are, are married. Interestingly, our sources don't really describe much about what happens at the wedding because, um, uh, and this has actually been an interesting problem because a lot of people who have looked at this in the past have said, well, you know, the, the court sources only describe what happens outside of the wedding. Uh, the church wedding. It describes all of these banquets, all of these fertility rites and so on, but it never describes what's going on inside the church. What my response to that has been, well, it didn't need to. Um, what happens in the church is prescribed. There's a source called the Trebnik, or back then called Patrebnik, that uh, included the ordinaries of the um, of the service, and uh, you didn't need to repeat it. There was a for that purpose. At any rate, they go in and they have their wedding. They come back out. There's a, a procession, very long procession with a wedding train involved with it back to the uh, wedding hall. And then there they have their wedding banquet. Interestingly, everybody eats except for the bride and groom. They're then led to the, uh, the door after sitting around and watching and some speeches and prayers. They're then led in the middle of the meal before everyone is done to the door, the exit of this hallway, uh, this, I'm sorry, this, um, uh, you know, banquet hall. And there a portal ceremony takes place where they're uh, poured over with, you know, sprinkled with hops, uh, very clear uh, fertility sim uh, symbol going all the way back for centuries, and then led to the bridal chamber, where they're again um, sprinkled with hops, and then allowed to go into the bridal chamber and consummate uh, the wedding, uh, the marriage. And then uh, the banquet is still going on, right? And then food is brought to the couple in their bridal chamber, and uh, they have their meal after they've uh, consummated the, the marriage. We we know this that they... Day two begins with a, uh, a, a purific purification bath where the bride and the groom separately go to baths. And, uh, uh, well, frankly, they wash off the, um, the uh, evidence of their, uh, of their, um, of their marriage. And um, they are attended by uh, male and female, uh, respectively, um, attendants. It's a very great honor to be appointed, appointed to do that. They're given new clothes, brand new clothes that has never been worn before. This is usually a gift from the bride's father. And then uh, there are another, other banquets. There are other um, gift exchanges. There are other audiences. And then on the third day, uh, additional audiences are performed, this time with lower-ranking uh, servitors, sometimes middle class. And all, uh, the middle class is the sort of uh, merchants and so on inside Moscow are brought in. And then also um, churchmen from, from afar, uh, from uh, the reaches of Russia, are brought in. And they're, they are uh, – they bring gifts and they offer prayers. They bring documents that show that um, commemorative prayers are being performed way out in, 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 the, in the regions. And in the 17th century, a fourth day is added. Uh, what happens is that the, um, the, the audience with the clergy on the third day in the 16th century is moved to a later day in the 17th century to give it more prominence, actually. So um, one of the things that this book tries to do is to interpret 
how these rituals change over time. And by looking at the changes in them, to try to deduce what the, the meaning of the ritual politically was. So for example, in the 16th century, when Moscow was ruled by the Danilovich dynasty, uh, descended from uh, Alexander Nevsky through his son, Daniel Moskovsky, uh, this is the dynasty that gives us Ivan III, Vasily III, Ivan IV, Ivan the Terrible. Um, in that period of the 15th and 16th centuries, uh, well, let's say 16th century, because that's what we can document, um, it was part of a wedding ceremony for the, for the groom uh, after the wedding, on the first day, after the wedding, to go and visit uh, the churches of the Kremlin and to perform uh, a panihida, a service, a commemorative service for uh, his dead ancestors. Um, he usually went with a very large assemble of people, and it was a, another large service. Panihida isn't a long service, maybe 40 minutes, uh, but it was uh, done publicly in a sense because you had to sort of process to the church to have it performed. And you were doing this in the church, St. Michael's, where um, the, the Tsars were buried, right? So the, 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 the Grand Prince's ancestors, direct ancestors, were right there. And you were offering a panihita for all of them. Basically, it was a dynastic moment. It was a, it was a time when the, the current groom was asking for prayers and offering prayers um, to his dead ancestors and for his dead ancestors uh, at the moment that he was about to produce the next generation of these, you know, of, of this dynasty. So it was clearly a dynastic moment. What's interesting uh, is that in the 17th century, of course, the Tsars of the 17th century are not descendants from the Danilovich dynasty that gives us, you know, Ivan III, Vasily III, and Ivan IV. It's a completely different dynasty. It's the Romanovs. They're related, of course, by marriage to the old dynasty, but they're not descended from it. And so what you see is that in the 17th century, starting in 1624, the very first Romanov royal wedding, Michael Romanov, the first Romanov czar, is that this all-important mini-pilgrimage is moved. It's moved to before the wedding, in the morning. It's, in fact, now moved to make it the, the first public uh, sort of moment of the wedding. The first thing that people would see uh, would be the Tsar not going to this to his wedding at the church as um, as was the case in the 16th century. But now in the 17th century, the first thing people would see inside the Kremlin was the Tsar going to pray for dead ancestors. But they weren't his ancestors, right? They were uh, predecessors, uh, but not ancestors. And yet that element is still there. It's interesting. You might think that they would just remove the elements since you know these weren't their direct ancestors. They'd somehow commemorate this differently. But in fact, what you find, I think, is, uh, is, a, is a fiction where the new dynasty was claiming sort of across the, the gap of the, of the time of troubles, the old dynasty is as its own through prayers. And this was a very important message because the Romanovs were just really in 1624, you know, just 11 years on the throne. Nobody really knew that the Romanovs were going to be the final solution to the succession problem that was posed in 1598 with the extinction of the Danilovich dynasty, the dynasty of 
you know, I'm the third, Vasily the third, I'm the fourth. That dynasty is gone. You needed to get a new one. It took them 15 years to figure it out. The Romanovs are there. We now know that the Romanovs succeed, but they didn't. And I guess it's really important to emphasize, um, really, uh, that the, you know, one of the key points of this book is that the Romanovs succeeded as a dynasty in these crucial, crucial first decades of their role, not, not, not just Michael Mikhail Fyodorovich's reign, but also Alexei Mikhailovich's reign, the first two Romanovs, precisely because, I argue, they were masters at manipulating and uh, exploiting ritual for their own dynastic purposes. And so, yes, I mean, 11 years in wasn't much of anything after the extent of the troubles that they had had. That's right. It, 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 we have to sort of always, you know, just is just generally true. We always have to fight the, the great sin of teleology. We know how it works out, but we can't bring that knowledge into the work. We have to assume that uh, the people that we're studying didn't know. And so they're pulling out all stops. And that's interesting to us because in doing so, they're, they're broadcasting to us through the sources what was important to them. And so I think, you know, this kind of highly detailed analysis of rituals uh, really does, it, it really is, I think, the, the entryway into understanding uh, concepts and uh, values and priorities that the Muscovites weren't saying uh, explicitly in, 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 you know, in other documents or in memoirs or in letters or whatever, but they're still telling us this because they are making, uh, they are making decisions. They are making changes and they're not doing it because, you know, somebody's bored with the way it was. These are actually crucially important changes that you don't make unless you're trying to project a certain message. And so to me, when I look at the, uh, when I look at the doc, the extensive documentation, frankly, Royal weddings are more, are better documented than any early modern court event. Better documented in coronations, better documented than uh, ambassadorial receptions, anything. Name day celebrations, processions to monasteries. Royal weddings have the largest number of folios that are still extant. And I think that's because they um, they spent a lot of time on them. They, they needed to get it right. And what was right, quote unquote, was a moving target. Even though, as you said, as I said before, the in the 16th century you have an awful lot of stability. That's because the you know the dynasty is set, and even though it's being tugged and, and really, you know, really challenged in terms of Ivan's marriages and and the you know, Patrician and other other stresses on the system, it holds because the dynasty is still there. It's only when the dynasty dies out that you have to you have to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and figure out how to continue moving the system on. And ritual is the way to do that. You know, I, I, when I was writing, I was thinking awfully an awful lot about how it is, you know, you know, at a, you know, at my college where I teach, we've had deans who have been hired from the outside. Okay. And we've had deans who have been my colleagues and uh, we're appointed. We have one right now. It's a pretty good dean, but you know, he, he, yesterday he was my my colleague, my equal in a sense. In fact, I I made full professor before him. Now he's the dean, and that 
that brings along a, you know, a subtle change in um, your relationship uh, to the person, how you talk to the person. Um, it's, you know, m- multiply that by 10. When you see boyars, especially from very illustrious old families like the Shwiskis, um, now having to, um, you know, bang their forehead on the ground before somebody who was once just yesterday, uh, their equal, that's, that's gotta be tough. And so in order to make that palatable, you have to create fictions. You have to create, uh, through the, the tool set that you have, which is largely ritual, um, a justification for behaving this way over someone, you know, at the end of the day, doesn't deserve it. Right. The only reason why you give that person the deference is because if you don't, a lot of you know worse things will happen. And so this, you know, the interesting uh, problem of changing dynasties, um, you know, which you know, uh, Pavlov um, has just written a wonderful two-volume book on uh, Michael Romanov's reign. Uh, frankly, the first book, serious book about that reign, is the 1620s and 30s is. That I can remember. Um, and, uh, you know, this is a fundamental problem about how the, the this new dynasty was able to, to succeed. We all talk about, you know, the Romanovs in the 19th century, Nicholas II and all that, the Russian Revolution, uh, on all the enormous personalities, Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, Alexander II. Um, but, but in fact, it's the two least known Romanovs who did all the heavy lifting for everybody else in that they died in their beds as czars rather than, um, you know, in a Lobna Miesta in Red Square being executed, which was kind of a possibility. It was a possibility. And of course, you know, we are so cut off from this way of looking at the world that we don't think about how important birth and heritage were in the 16th century everywhere, not just in Russia. But, you know, the, the Shwisky princesses, princes actually thought they were superior to the Danilovici because they were of an older line and, you know, higher in, 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 in their own minds. And so now they've got these Romanov boyars who are being um, advanced in front of them. And, it, and, you know, they're just one example. There were many other clans that had similar uh, theories of their own legacies in some cases made up and in some cases quite legitimate, but nonetheless, um, the Ronas had a lot of heavy lifting to do, as you mentioned. Uh, I'd like to get back for a minute to one of the things that the Russians were quite explicit about is that they wanted um, Zaras and Zarisas who were Orthodox Christians and not Catholic Christians. And one of the issues with um, even behind the bride shows was that most of the surrounding states were either Catholic or Protestant by the 16th century. And they did not want to have their sons and daughters convert either. But there were a few instances, including the first false Dimitri, whom you mentioned, where either czars or grand princes or other members of the family married uh, foreigners. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how the wedding ritual was adapted for that situation? Yeah, I, it, there's a chapter in the book where I, I take three case studies um, and, uh, and explore exactly what the implications of intermarriage, for lack of a better word, 
had on the way the rituals were performed. So I looked at the 1495 wedding of uh, uh, Elena Ivanovna and uh, Alexander of Lithuania. This is a case where a, a Russian dynast uh, was marrying a female dynast, was marrying abroad uh, and going to stay abroad and did not convert. In fact, it was a major point of the negotiations of this wedding was that Elena would not be forced to convert. She was cajoled a few times, but always resisted. Um, the second was the the marriage of uh, Magnus, who was the, um, the the brother of the Danish king, son of a Danish king as well, and um, uh, a Staritska princess, a cousin once removed of Ivan the Terrible in 1573. And then the third was, as you say, the, the first false Dimitri. In each of these cases, uh, and the reason why they're, they're so really very interesting to study, is that the Muscovites had to hold on to some element of the traditional wedding uh, rituals. And by that, I mean both the... Um, sort of the secular celebratory rituals that happened outside the church and around it um, during those three days and the liturgics going on inside the church that was governed by that that source I mentioned before, the Trebnik, or what Trebnik, uh, the Slujebnik, the service book. So in each of these cases, what you find is that the Muscovites are sort of telling us really what was the most important things that constituted a, a marriage. So for them, inside the church, very easy. A, a, a marriage isn't a marriage without a crowning. So you simply had to have that ritual. You had to have a crowning put over the bride and the groom. Certain prayers, a uh, set of them, usually three, um, uttered by the officiant, the priest. And then this dance of Isaiah, which is very famous from film and, and literature, where the bride and groom were, uh, uh, who have just been married just been crowned, uh, go three times around and on a loy or a little table in the middle of the nave of the church while a certain hymn is is sung. Um, uh, that's key. And we find that uh, that element in the wedding, uh, even when we have uh, heterodox uh, spouses. Um, when we look outside the wedding, we find that there are a number of things that the Muscovites consider really essential too. So for, for example, it's rather, rather humorous that the, in 1495, when Yelena Ivanovna is sent to uh, Vilnius to marry um, Alexander of Lithuania, very important uh, marriage diplomatically in terms of the, bringing peace to these two warring neighbors, um, the Muscovites send all the various accoutrements of a, of a traditional Muscovite wedding with them. And the, and the Catholics in Lithuania have really no idea what to do with them. So they send uh, uh, a, 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 a stallion, a horse that the, grand, that the groom is supposed to ride during processions. But there won't be any processions. And the, and the groom looks at this horse and says, oh, this is a nice horse. I'll keep the horse. But I'm not riding it at the wedding because why would I ride it? Because the Muscovites were just thinking in terms of how the layout of space inside the Kremlin called for certain processions from palaces to churches and back and forth. Um, those didn't happen in the way that the Muscovites anticipated. They furthermore sent uh, traditional Muscovite clothing, including for the groom. Uh, they sent uh, him other gifts of fabric, um, icons. Uh, a cross and chain, 
which he had really no use for, um, both at the wedding, but even afterwards. This is a Catholic. He really had no use for an Orthodox um, icon. So uh, we, what we see is sort of a miscommunication, a misunderstanding on the parts, or an enormous assumption, if you like, on the part of the Muscovites on what this marriage is going to mean. Now, we can take another example of this. In 1573, we have Magnus coming to, uh, actually, Novgorod to, to get married to uh, a Staritskaya princess. And there, the wedding uh, is in two parts. There is a the Protestant minister and there is an Orthodox priest. But the bride is the only one actually allowed inside the church. The groom and her minister, his minister, sorry, is... Uh, uh, are, are sort of positioned out in the um, the anteroom, uh, and they're not actually allowed into the church. So when she performs the um, dance of Isaiah, she goes around it by herself, and the service is, is, is physically separated by a wall, um, the wall that separates the nave from the antechamber, right? So Orthodox churches have three sections. There's an antechamber, there's a nave, sometimes called the actual church. And then there's the altar, which is more than just the altar table. It's the, it's everything east of the, of the iconostas. Uh, the bride isn't going to be in the, in the altar. She's going to be in the nave. And typically so would be the groom, of course. But here in 1573, he wasn't allowed in. So this, the, the service had to be separated by, uh, by a lot of space. And certain rituals could only be performed by, by the bride. And then the third example, just quickly, was uh, the first false Dimitri, and that was a bizarre moment. You won't find a, a stranger wedding than that because uh, they had already been married by proxy uh, in Lithuania. Uh, and so the wedding that was performed in, in Russia, Mos in Moscow, it's unclear what it was. Uh, the Lithuanians thought it was a uh, it was uh, it was a wedding, um, or sort of a revival of of vows. The Muscovites thought it was the actual wedding, uh, not something preliminary. Um, the Muscovites understood that the what was what happened in Lithuania a uh, year before had been merely uh, the betrothal service, and what was happening here in Moscow was the actual wedding, the crowning. Um, so. There was that bizarreness there where nobody really understood what, what the other person was doing. Moreover, the um, uh, there's a coronation inserted in between um, some of the services uh, that sort of just in, just installed for the bride. The bride is is crowned, and the traditional wedding service is interrupted so that this coronation could happen. And I argue in the book that the, in a way, uh, this was actually a kind of clear reason why the false Demetrius just simply had to go. Not just that he married a Catholic who remained a Catholic, but it was that he had himself, he was the choreographer, altered a service, the purpose of which was to integrate the bride into the elite, the wedding. And he mixed with it a service that is designed to elevate the bride, the coronation, elevate her over everybody else. And these two services in artfully slapped together uh, worked at cross purposes. And so my argument, and it may be a stretch, but I, 
I think it's right, is that this um, ritual abomination, if you like, um, really did set the stage for what was going to happen in the next few days where the tide turns against the, the first, first false Dimitri and he, he'll be executed be, uh, grisly, in a grisly way. So uh, all these three sort of episodes show us that um, uh, the, the wedding service, both inside the church and outside the church, contemplated, assumed um, Orthodox uh, brides and grooms. Um, and that when you didn't have that, and sometimes you weren't, uh, you had to make adjustments. And what adjustments were made are very important because they tell us what's most you know, important to the Muscovites at the time, what elements of the, the services inside and outside the church they simply could not do without. I think we've covered most of the, the high spots here. I want people to hear that uh, we've left out most of the fun stuff, uh, all the dirty <laughs> tricks that were played on the brides and uh, the things that Peter the Great did to show that he wasn't uh, going to live with the old ways and the Miesnitschisva, which is a placement system by birth um, and how that played out in the wedding ceremonies. And so they're going to have to go to the book and buy the book <laughs> or at least borrow it from their libraries so that they can find out all that good stuff and the gift giving, which was... Uh, had all kinds of implications uh, that we're not going to have time to get to. I'm going to ask you now if there's one thing that you want people to take away from it, uh, the book and uh, your study of weddings. Yeah, that's a really interesting question because as this interview itself shows, I'm uh, one of those people who can't decide which of the themes are more important. So I talk about them all. I guess pulling back as much as I can, um, I would say that there really is a, there really is a language that ritual and ceremony speaks, and it really is the goal of this book, as opposed to the first book on bride shows, which is also about a ritual. But but this book really is attempting to wave a flag over this theme of, of rituals and urge my, um, my colleagues to, um, to think more about how other rituals might tell us more about this society that was so reluctant to articulate in ways that we want them to, um, what they thought and what they were trying to achieve at various moments in these centuries. Um, this is a book about ritual. Uh, it happens to be set in Muscovy. It happens to be set in the early modern period. But ultimately, um, my hope is that this book by, by my colleagues will be read as a, a contribution to this larger literature, um, which really is exploding right now um, in other fields in the early modern period. I guess what I also would say, going back again to my early comments about John Clive, is that I'll, I, I hope that the book is a good read. Um, there are fascinating stories. There are amazing personalities. There is dramatic change over time that is charted in this book, and a very narrow theme, of course, weddings, but, but it show, uh, shines a lot of light on other themes. And so what I, what I hope, too, is noticed by readers is that, um, you know, that... Uh, I've, I've attempted to make the book 
um, appealing and accessible, even as I get very, very close into this, into the, into the documents, into the sources and talk about watermarks and talks about, talk about different versions of documents, which can be, you know, eye-wateringly boring, but I, I, I've attempted, and I hope it's noticed, and maybe it won't be, maybe I'm fooling myself, but I hope it's noticed that, you know, history can be written um, even in a technical way, uh, on technical topics, in a, in a way that is uh, um, readable. I found it very engaging. I thought you did a great job. Um, and what are you working on now? Are you going to go on with rituals? Thank you for saying that, by the way. Uh, I, you know what? I do have a few projects. Uh, I, I have on the horizon uh, the idea of producing a, uh, a book uh, of these documents, a diplomatic edition of the documents themselves. Uh, a, a collection hasn't been actually published since the 1780s, so it's high time someone coming along and actually produced a better edition of them with an index and all the other apparatus. Um, but actually, I'm moving in um, a, a different direction. I've started uh, working on um, a sort of intellectual biography of Prince uh, Simeon Shakovskoy, who uh, was an early 17th century intellectual. In fact, I argue that I will argue, I suppose, that he was sort of Russia's first secular intellectual. And so, what I'm doing now is I'm gathering all of his writings, and I'm uh, starting with the sources, just like I did with this. And um, uh, writing out, uh, trying to figure out everything he wrote, where the originals are, what's been published, what hasn't been published, and then at some point I'll read it. Right, right now though, I'm, I'm just um, trying to get a grasp on uh, the range of his interests, and uh, it's an enormous corpus of work that he wrote on, and he's important. Uh, he's important because he wrote on a number. He was a consultant, let's say, on a number of key issues of his own day, brought by the czar, for example, uh, on, on weddings. Uh, when the czar was trying to get his daughter to marry a, a different Danish prince, um, uh, and there was some pushback because uh, in the 17th century, there was the thought that this Danish prince would simply have to convert. That wasn't an issue in the 17th, 16th century, but in the 17th century, it became an issue. And the Tsar brings in Shikovskoy to say why that isn't true. Uh, and so he writes this lengthy uh, discussion of baptism and intermarriage. By the way, citing a few of the examples we just we just talked about of intermarriage. Um, so anyway, I th he's, he's fascinating to me. And he's also an old name because, you know, my, my old dissertation advisor, Ned Keenan, thought he had... Uh, written some things, uh, <laughs> as you know, the uh, the correspondence between Kerbsky and uh, Ivan, he thought Shakovskoy had written. Um, that's one of the reasons why I stayed away from him in a long time. As a, as a Keenan student, people might have thought that I was just trying to uh, re revive that argument. Certainly not. But now, 25 years removed from all of that um, graduate work, I can, I can return, I think, more safely to so I'm very excited about it. It's, it'll be a very, I mean, weddings will, will be there. Marriage is there. He marries himself uh, multiple times, causing a scandal. So there will be some use, utility to what I've been doing the last few years. But uh, this, this is new. This is different. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us, Tross. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this was really fun. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, and today I've been talking with Russell E. Martin, 
But the Tsar's happy occasion, ritual and dynasty in the weddings of Russia's rulers, 1495 to 1745, for New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Like us on Facebook, search for NB History, and follow us on Twitter at New History Books. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my novels at www.cplazzi.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation on the New Books Network.